Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, so we're very lucky to have Sharon Fallon with us today. Uh, Sharon is a lawyer in uh, Naperville, Illinois, but she practices all over the place in Illinois. And um, really, uh, uh, I, I got to meet um, Sharon a couple of years ago and um you know, I got to know her background. She's a University of Illinois grad, uh, which is near and dear to my heart because my daughter Claire went there and I thought it was such a great, uh, great place. And then she went to Loyola for uh, law school and it's been practicing for a number of years um, in the area of domestic relations and family law. So welcome Sharon Fallon. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. I was just telling you before we got started, it's a new experience for me and, you know, podcast and this, this new world that we're in, but um, it's exciting to be talking to you today. So thanks for your time. Oh, sure. You know, um, I, I started doing these podcasts uh, about a year uh, and a couple of months ago. And so I found it as a good way to, um, to keep in touch with our clients um, keep in touch with uh, folks that follow uh, Shannon Law Group, but also um, it's been so much fun to meet um, lawyers. I, so there's been some sort of stereotypes about lawyers uh, that in the media or, or marketing or advertising or whatever put out by people. And I'm here to tell you, I, I've been doing this for about 33 years and um, lawyers are very interesting people, but you got to get to know them. You got to get to know them. So, I mean, I, I'm in this group of people that uh, we meet uh, every day, and usually there's a lawyer joke, and um, and I love them. I think they're hilarious because um, they they really I think teasing is a sign of affection, so they must really love me. But um, so in, in any event, um, I want to get to know you a little bit, uh, Sharon. I want and I, thought, I want the uh, our our listeners to listen uh, to to hear exactly what you have to say. So tell me exactly where you're from. Where where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in actually in a small town called Fox Lake, Illinois. It um, is over by the Chain of Lakes in Northern Illinois, almost Wisconsin. Um, and so I have lived in Illinois my whole life. I, as you said, I then went to school um, in Illinois, but I, that area is still near and dear to my heart. Uh, one of my sets of parents is still over there. I'm actually a child of divorce myself. Um, it's one of the things that kind of drew me to practice in that area of law. Um, but as a result of, uh, of living in that area, I grew up kind of on a boat, <laughs> you know, like it, we went boating all the time, tubing, skiing, things like that. And I'm a pretty outdoorsy person. So that's one of the things I like to do in my free time. Um, but I think what you said is, is really interesting about <laughs> lawyer jokes and misconceptions being a divorce or divorce lawyer. I hear that a lot. And the way I like to look at it is 
it's one of the most difficult times that people go through and they need representation by someone who understands them as a person. And it's one of the reasons I want, want to do this podcast with you because I'm hoping my clients can understand me as a person because we connect in a, in a very intimate time in, in that person's life. Um, and I like to, to understand my clients on a personal level too, because it's a, it's a very um, important time and stressful. And the way I like to look at it is you wouldn't want um, attorneys who weren't compassionate or who did not understand that representing you. The court system certainly isn't perfect, uh, but that's precisely why I work in it because I hope to provide honest representation in that context. Well, that's great. So let's dig a little bit deeper. I mean, so you, so you were, you grew up in Fox Valley there or Fox Lakes, right? Is that what it is called? Yeah. So what high school did you go to? Carmel High School. It's a private high school in Mundelein, Illinois. Okay, yeah. And then, um, so then, boy, I, I tell you, so you were with some really smart kids in high school, and then you went to some even smart, smarter kids at University of Illinois, and then you went to some really smart kids. Uh, so you've been with this whole chain of really smart kids through your whole uh, education, huh? Yep. It's, it's a, a little daunting, but it keeps you on your toes, and I think it challenges you, so... I was fortunate to, you know, have, have that upbringing, uh, but certainly it is, it was competitive. Yeah. I, when I was, uh, um, I've been to your high school before and I was, it's, it's pretty amazing that, that, that high school, um, really a nice, nice place. And I've, I've been to U of I, which to me is, uh, you know, if you have, if our listeners haven't been down there, you should just check it out. Go to, I mean, these quads that they have down there and, and this huge facility, it's amazing. And then I went, uh, my daughter was in the business school down there and uh, I was amazed how, how great that was. What did you study at U of I? I majored in English, actually, English literature. I've always been interested in writing. Um, I actually knew I wanted to be an attorney from a young age. And so I really tried to hone that skill of writing and um, then people skills and, and working with people. Um, so yeah, that's what I did when I was there. And I also thought it was really important just like get involved and get to know people. I joined probably about every club in the immediate vicinity for the first year and then narrowed it down a little bit, but I did everything from uh, for a month I was in pancake club and we made pancakes on the clock on the quad and all the proceeds went to a local food bank. Nice. So we'd make them in the winter and sell them, you know, for a dollar or something, a, a piece to people coming out of class. And then it was just, you know, just volunteer students. So whatever money we earned, we just brought to the um, look, I think it was a local food bank. I also did an October lovers uh, club. We went and found a reindeer farm. I sometimes I'm trying to remember exactly where it was, but it was, um, out in Southern Illinois and kind of to get to know people and, uh, and do October related things. And then I was also a, a captain of a soccer team, which was really interesting because I never played soccer, but <laughs> I just wanted to do that and get to know, uh, people in, in my immediate vicinity. So that was great. And that was really was one of my favorite things about U of I, because there was an endless slew of people you could get to know all different types of people, all different groups. And I'm just the type of person that I, I like to have that one-on-one -on -one connection with friends, but then um, 
get to know people from all different backgrounds. And I don't tend to stick with like one single group of people. I think it's important to branch out. That's great. Hey, so one thing I, I ask uh, people on podcasts is some of their first jobs. Sure. And um, I've had some hilarious ones. Um, but there's been some good ones and some funny ones. Why don't you tell me some of your most memorable jobs as either a teenager or college kid or whatever? So I actually worked for five years at an old fashioned ice cream scoop. I was an ice cream scooper, essentially. I don't even know if it would constitute as a server, um, but at a restaurant called Orlando's and I don't know if I can say their name there, <laughs> but they're a great restaurant in a, in a round Lake. We served pizza and ice cream and it was a 1950s parlor. So there was Marilyn Monroe and Elvis, just the whole theme. And the funny thing about that job is I, I got to know great people there, but they had about one or maybe two CDs of music from that time that they just played over and over the entire five plus years that I was there. <laughs> so, do you, so do you kind of like cringe whenever you hear an Elvis song or something like that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't actually cringe because it was a positive experience and a happy right. time in my life, but it's it's not something that I seek out. It's more like it reminds me of that. It's like, I don't need to hear it again, turn it off. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. So, um, so you worked for five years. That's, so you, did you start as an eighth grader or something? No, I started um, in when I was 15 or 16, but I'd worked on the, in the summers when I came back home over, over school part-time when I, like I would take an unpaid internship. Uh, I, and then I would work there on the weekends to earn some money, like in the summers when I was in college. And then obviously eventually I, I stopped. So I think it was sophomore, junior. Yeah. So the first two years of college, I came back for the summers. Wow. That's great. And then, um, you know, my, my daughter does the same thing. She works at a, a, a burger establishment. Um, and so she's learning how to deal with, you know, everybody. The, she's, she works the drive-through. She works, you know, she delivers stuff to their cars, does all that kind of stuff. And I tell you, you know, you learn some great people skills in, in those positions, don't you? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing that I, I find is that, um, you know, we represent people from all walks of life, you know, from, um, you know, people that don't have jobs all the way to CEOs of corporations, to, you know, middle management, to, you know, uh, everything. And so we need to be able to relate to everybody that has, you know, so I think the, the first jobs, you know, for all you parents out there, you know, make sure your kids get a, get a job. I mean, I, I, I'll i tell you, uh, if you don't mind, Sharon, I'll tell you about my most, probably the best job I ever had. You want to hear about it? Sure. <laughs> I was a paper boy. And so in eighth grade, um, I think it was somehow passed down through, I'm one of 10 kids. So one of my older brothers, I think had this route or I don't know how I ended up getting this route, but in eighth grade, um, I was, became a paper boy and I had 150 papers, which I had to get up at five fifteen in the morning, pick up my bundles of papers and deliver them to, uh, 150 different locations. And so on Sundays, I had to figure out the logistics to put one pile here, take my bike and drive it to another pile because it was too heavy. But the, the thing that I learned the most during that was I had to go door to door 
every month to collect money from people to pay me because I paid for the papers myself. It wasn't like I was an employee of the paper. They had it all down back then as far as how, how to, to place me in the right place. But I hadn't figured out the electronic billing, which I would I would have immediately because I didn't really enjoy that. But I, it was the best thing I ever did. For two years or two years plus, I had to go door to door and I found out how to deal with people, how, how to, you know, some people were short on money. Some people were unbelievably generous. Some people would just avoid the door. Some people had big dogs. You learn all that stuff. And I think that's good because... As you know, every case that you have is a little ambiguous, isn't it? I mean, there's always, nothing's clean, nothing's easy. There's always something that is kind of a different thing, but you have to roll with it. So tell me how your experiences, you know, at, in high school, your job, U of I, Loyola kind of prepared you to deal with the ambiguity of, you know, being a lawyer. Sure. Well, meeting people from all walks of life is really important to prepare you for that and keeping an open mind. I mean, in my, in my current practice, even if I have a similar family, nothing's the same. And I think it's important to remember that because these are real people, their lives are being affected. And I, I never try to I try to never forget that or shy away from the difficulties of the case or the nuances of the case, because as you said, my experience has prepared me in, I took a, several unpaid legal internships in legal aid. Um, I've worked with clients who are financially stable. I've also worked with in, in those types of internships, clients with limited means and were kind of at their wits ends and I felt that getting to know people who were familiar with the courtroom um, or this was the scariest experience for them really helped prepare me for that. Um, one of the, my internships in law school, I, I worked for CGLA, which I, I helped expunge criminal records for people uh, that didn't have any money to pay and that was just through legal aid. And I clearly didn't go into criminal law and I had re really had limited criminal law, law experience other than the one or two classes I took in law school, but you learned how to do it through the clinic and you met with people. One of the most important experiences about that is I wasn't just behind the scenes working on the paperwork and um, going through the rap sheets. It was meeting with the person individually, hearing their story um, and we weren't on the clock. It was all volunteer work. So I meet them with them one-on-one -on -one and hear the story about how important it was for them to start over or turn a new leaf or they couldn't go into healthcare because they needed this, this thing dealt with. Um, and so even though that's a totally different area of law, that experience was really formative for me in how, while this is my job and I do this every day, this really affects dramatically someone else's life. And I want to be there for my clients and whether I'm practicing now or in 15 years and it becomes even, you know, I have even more experience. I don't want this to become routine where I forget that. Yeah. You know, I, I was looking at some of the notes that I made prior to this interview and, you know, what I, what I picked up was um, a sensitivity um, and a care for others. I, um, 
you know, one of the things that I really like is that um, you have several publications regarding at-risk children and child welfare, welfare. and then also that you, um, for the past five years, you've been a volunteer attorney with the guardianship help desk, um, helping petitioners with guardianship forms, which is, you know, this is stuff that, that um, you don't have to do, but it seems like you were raised well enough to understand that it's not about you. And so I, I like that. Um, and I think people sense it. Um, they, they can read through it and see whether or not it's genuine or not. But, um, you know, I, I like the fact that you just don't talk about it, that you're doing it. So I also like the fact that you practice no, leave no trace camping. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so the essentially backpacking in the camping sense, sometimes people would talk about backpacking across Europe or something. I've yet to been to Europe. I, I'm hoping to go one day, but I mean uh, it in the camping sense of I'll go on trips and you just bring whatever's on your back. You have to bring a water filter. Um, so you, and make sure you camp near a water source so that way you could filter the water. Um, you bring freeze dried food and anything else that could fit into your backpack, that's what you have. So you could go for a couple of days or a week or however long. Um, and so I've done that for the last maybe five, six years. I actually originally did my first backpacking leave no trace camping trip when I had graduated high school. And then I didn't realize it was a thing that people did outside of a, a specialty trip. And I, it wasn't until college I started meeting people who were really interested into the out into outdoors adventure things. And it wasn't really until, like I said, five, six years ago that I sought out a group of people who were interested in this and did it in their free time on the summers or some people every weekend. Um, my favorite, you know, there's limited time, but um, I've gotten some good trips in over, over the last couple of years. My favorite trip probably um, so far was in the Big Sur um, in California. So a friend and, and I went and we literally just got a map that we ordered from Amazon, picked a trail, was like, this looks like a good one, <laughs> rented a car to drive out to the Big Sur and parked it at the trailhead and just started hiking up. So we went up about uh, the first day, we just hiked up five hours, I think, till we got to a stopping point before the sun went down and found there's no campsites. So you just, you just have to have a fire permit. Um, and that was when I made my first fire on my own. So it was really cool. <laughs> and then that we spent the next couple of days, uh, about hiking and going along the big Sur, the, the ridges, um, and the cliff edge there for about like 11 hours a day and then coming back to the campsite. So it was a, it was a long weekend thing, but it was beautiful because it's right near the ocean there. So the views are great. Um, you get, you really just appreciate not only nature, but I find it's a great way to appreciate life and kind of the minimalist things that you need. Um, and it's a great time to reflect and to reground um, oneself. So I, I think a lot about whatever's going on in my life, um, and I just have a good time with it. So that's some, one of my favorite things to do. Uh, I haven't gone on a trip yet this year, but uh, planning on it, I'm sure sometime probably the best time to go is like June or maybe 
yeah, before it gets too hot. <laughs> right. It's pretty strenuous. Well, yeah. So I, I, you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so um, mm. we'll have to uh, talk. I, I went on a couple over weekend uh, backpacking trips um, up in some really cool places up in the Wenatchee National Forest in Washington. Sure. Yeah, and, you know, I, I went to school in Oregon and Eastern Oregon is absolutely amazing. I mean, uh, you would love it and um, you would like the whole, whole thing. So that, that's cool. But you told me before we started that you would swim on a pretty cool trip. Um, speaking of lawyers as sharks, why don't you tell <laughs> us a little bit about that? Sure. So the, the reason I haven't been interested in, in backpacking this year is I have my, my newest obsession is I'm learning to scuba dive. And so this was not a scuba trip. Um, it was more of a snorkel adventure, but I just went shark diving at, or shark snorkeling more like and jumped into the waters in Jupiter, Jupiter, Florida with 12 bull sharks. So that was awesome. I, I should show you pictures after Joe. We were about inches from the sharks sometimes. They, sometimes they were several feet away but then they, they came, they came up and swam right by you. You could oh reach God. out and touch them if you, you weren't supposed to touch them. So I didn't, I really wanted to, but you, <laughs> you weren't supposed to, um, just holding onto a rope. So you had to wear gloves so they didn't mistake your hands for jellyfish. Uh, and other than that, you just have your snorkel in your mouth and you watch the show. So that was pretty fantastic. I, I hope to do that again. How so, big are they? How big are these sharks? They are about... I'm really bad at measurements. I mean, 10, 12 feet long. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Anywhere from like eight to 12 feet. I think it was depending. Yeah. They were, they were big sharks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. I'm going to just, I mean, people are going to wonder, were you afraid? I was not, it was funny. I was struggling more with the snorkel because I'm still learning to dive and I had never done, despite all my water adventures as a kid, I've never done snorkeling or, and I'm still learning to scuba dive. So the waves were really choppy and I kept on swallowing salt water and I was struggling more to stay still because if you kick, the sharks don't want to be by you. They're more scared of you than, than you are of them. So once I finally calmed down and uh, changed my breathing to shallow breaths and stayed calm, I was able to, to focus and really enjoy it. And I wasn't really scared. I don't really get, I have an invincibility complex. So that's one of the, issues. <laughs> that, that's one of the things I think that makes, that makes these adventures so exciting for me. <laughs> All right. So I, I want to know a little bit about uh, who raised you, because uh, this is a pretty cool person that we're dealing with here. So Tell, tell me a bit of, a little bit about who raised you and who I want to know how you create a kid that has an invincibility complex that <laughs> does leave no trace camping that is, you know, will stick with a job scooping ice cream, which is hard, by the way, because my daughter Emma did it at Haagen-Dazs and it's hard to scoop ice cream. It's not fun. Uh, so I want to know about, you know, some of the people that raised you or, or were some of your role models. So my, my mother and my father, they're divorced now. They got divorced when I was in kindergarten or preschool, actually. But they're both just great and amazing people. And those are certainly my biggest role models. 
my my mom is a actually a former social worker. So I think that had a lot of impact on how I perceived the world and what I wanted to do with my career. Um, she actually, for years when I was young, she worked at an agency uh, that dealt with um, battered women and their children and helped them with services. So that's something that I think I grew up around. Uh, the idea of trauma and picking oneself up and, and helping out others, that idea really, I think, came from her. Um, she's very intelligent and very compassionate. So that's something that just was familiar with me. And I wanted to my life to, to reflect helping people as hers did. And then the sense of adventure probably comes from my dad. Um, he's amazing. My, uh, I, he has like a heart, the heart of a 25 year old. <laughs> and um, he really instilled, I think, the sense of adventure um, in me. My dad and I went camping a lot when we were younger, but not nothing like the, the camping that I do now. But when I was a kid, he used to take us uh, camping. And he, he said to me the other day, he was like, you know, I used to, used to take you camping when you were little, but we just, you know, cooked out and had, you know, tents and, you know, just like you do when you you're on family vacation at any time, he's like, we didn't do the stuff, the stuff that you do now, <laughs> like where yeah, did you right. get that from? Wow. <laughs> so I think that the combination kind of th those, those balancing of the, as you said, the adventure and then wanting to make a difference, um, and th that those probably definitely came from my parents. That's cool. And um, so are you telling me when you do this no trace uh, camping, you don't use a tent? No, you do use a tent. Um, and that's more <laughs> to protect you. For, I think you'd be eaten alive by the bugs. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, because I, I um, you know, but you really got to think hard about what you're going to put in that backpack because. Yeah, you don't have a car. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in that, got that backpack, it's the only thing you got. You're pretty selective because you got to carry that for the miles that you're traveling too. So that's it's a hard that's a hard thing, man. And uh, that's so cool that you found these groups. Um, so what what are some of these groups that you joined? Are, are you able to tell me some of these groups that you joined to to find these uh, these cool outings you do? Well, yeah, wait, I'm, it's kind of in a flux right now. Um, the best group that I found was actually um, through a site called Meetup, and it was a backpacking group on that I specifically was looking for. Um, a backpacking adventure group, yeah. but the everything's in flux right now because with COVID still being amongst us, um, there yeah. a lot of people are still reluctant and rightfully so to get together. So I haven't probably seen that group of people for since then um, for a year, and I, I think that's you were talking about things that that really impact the way I view the world. And I think that's actually one of them because I've met friends that I've connected with and, and had these really, you know, funny conversations or really um, serious personal conversations with on some of these hiking trips. And we only know each other in that context. So I may not see them for six months or maybe, maybe even longer, but then we get together again and it's, it's great. And that's the common bond. But I think that really taught me that you don't need to, um, you don't need to 
uh, to look at, at people as, and rank them as if, oh, this person's the most, you know, important in my life or these, um, you could really have a connection with someone just, and even in a limited context, and you could really impact someone's life, uh, even if you know them for a short period of time. And I try to take that and carry it in my practice, because when I have a client, I'm coming in at that point in their life where they need someone and they don't know much about me um, unless maybe they listen to this podcast. Now, maybe they know too much, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I'm learning a lot about them and probably things that they may not even tell some of the closest people in their lives. And um, so to be able to foster that connection with someone when you know them in a limited, limited context and a limited period of time, but know that it could still make a long-term impact is an important lesson, I think. Yeah, you know, um, we only, we're only on this earth for a shorter period of time. And then in our legal practice is even shorter. So, um, you know, what I tell the folks that work here is let's, let's choose the cases that, that we're really, really good at and let's um, make an impact there because um, let's not let's not dilute by handling stuff that that other lawyers are, are are better at. So I like the fact that you you concentrate on one area of practice uh, because you, you know as we know you get to know the judges you know what what they like to see because um, they're always looking for the just result and you're able to um, listen to your client understand what they're saying. And you've been there before on those cases. So you focus um, mainly uh, on family law, but is there any specific type of cases where if somebody was looking for a lawyer and, you know, they said, listen, uh, I want somebody that's really good at this. Um, what would you say is your, your, your best strength as a, an attorney, um, Sharon? I, I would I wouldn't uh, turn a case away, but I do like cases where, or I rather would say I, I'm good at cases where there's room for negotiation in the midst of conflict. So that lots of times that comes up in the context of what's formerly known as child custody is now called allocation of parental responsibilities. So parenting time issues. And maybe there's an impasse between the parents and we need to figure out a schedule that works for not only both parents, but for the kids and, and putting them first. So I definitely in, enjoy helping people on cases where they're really interested in what's best for their children. And maybe there's some special issues there that need to be dealt with. Um, I have uh, some experience in special education law. And so I have had cases where it's in the context of the divorce, but there has been a, a child or children with special needs. And so we have to talk about the IEP plan or their 504 plan, or maybe they just need some extra uh, attention, or maybe the, the judge just needs to hear about what makes this family unique in the needs of the children and whether it be the schedule or the reason they need to stay in that school, or they just have just great services in that district. So it's really important then that they don't move districts. So it's not about mom or dad having residential um, authority because they want it, but maybe it's because the child has developed some um, really good relationships with their 
special education teachers and they're, they don't want to break off in those services. Um, I also, uh, in it, I mainly do divorce, uh, but I do as well take adoption cases, um, guardianship cases and DCFS cases. Those don't come around a lot, but I have pretty, um, good, ex a pretty extensive experience in DCFS matters from my experience in law school, I, I clerked for a judge and I also worked for the Office of the Public Guardian um, for a couple of years. I really focused my learning in school and in my clinicals on child-related issues and specifically child protection to understand that context. So I'm very familiar with INCRA, which is the Abuse uh, Neglect uh, Child Reporting Act which comes into play in DCFS cases, but also could be relevant if those kinds of claims are being made in the context of the divorce case or if someone needs to know uh, how they will, they'll deal with it or how, how it will affect them if the parent, the other parent, God forbid, makes a claim in their divorce case. Like, is this gonna affects, affect their parenting time? Do they need someone to attend the meeting with them? Um, so I'm really familiar with that as well. Well, so, um... I mean, you, you you already told us that you lived through this. And so you have a sensitivity towards it. I'm assuming that when you when a case comes in and there's children involved, you focus like a laser beam um, on what's best for them uh, and try and make sure that at least you can establish some sort of amicability between the spouses. Am I wrong about that? No, you absolutely. I mean, yes, you are. Um, you are not wrong. Uh, I advocate for my client, uh, but it is important to know that that you know the children come first, and usually the clients that I tend to represent, I, I, they see that. And one of the biggest things to remember when you're talking about child um, issues is that. Nine times out of 10, 9.5 times out of 10, both parents in their hearts want what's best for the children. And so you just need to find what that common ground is. They may not even realize that there's a solution right in front of them. And so my goal is always to find what that solution is. Uh, most cases don't go to trial. I'm able to try a case if necessary, but my goal is not to, to churn a case and, and to uh, take it to trial unless that's explicitly what my client wants. And so it's really to everyone's benefit if we could see, if we could be solution focused and results oriented in how can we improve your life, get you back together, get your, you know, keep your kids out of it, but set them up in a position that this is a new way their family's structured now, but it's not, it's not the end of the world. And I want everyone to be in one piece so that hopefully when I'm done representing the person, they feel whole at the end, as whole as you could be after you go through this process and that their, their children are protected. You know, it seems to me, um, you know, it, so I, I am in, uh, uh, I have a, a practice when, you know, we, we're in the court system all the time. And, um, you know, the cases that we choose um, to handle are, you know, serious personal injury, wrongful death cases, that type of thing. Um, and you know, I, the way I see the court system is as, as a dispute resolution area that we've paid taxes for, and they're specialists. These, these, these judges are, 
are specialized in resolving disputes among people. Um, but I find one of the most important times for me um, is the initial meeting with the client um, and then getting really prepared. And then the first call I make to the opposing counsel uh, when there's usually, usually I deal with insurance companies, but then when they, when they hire a lawyer, that first call to the other side, just to let them know, hey, listen, um, we're going to get along. Uh, we may represent people that don't like each other right now, um, that, that are, you know, there's really bad things, but we're going to get along because it's in the best interest for our clients to make sure that we do find that solution you're talking about. Um, and, and maybe, um, we can get together for a cup of coffee and talk about it before our clients spend, you know, 20, 30, $40,000 to each of us to resolve a hundred dollar question. So. I think that's a really important, uh, you know, series of events. I mean, do you find that in your practice as well? Yeah, and to go off of that, I think that's important as well. Just to be honest, I I want to be honest um, with my clients on their options, and there may be more than one solution to their problem. And it's important to be honest to my clients as well as what not only what the best case scenario is, but what the middle case scenario is and what the worst case scenario is, because it wouldn't be in, in my book, it wouldn't be fair representation for me to know more information than you do when it's your life. And I can't always predict what, well, I can never predict what the judge is going to do, but I want you to know the range of options. And the more, as you say, the more collaborative you can be with opposing counsel, the better for for my client, um, unless there's, you know, a particular reason, if, if we reach that point and we need to litigate something fine. Um, but then that's going to be my client's choice. So yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, you know, having done this for three, three years, um, there are some lawyers that, that you, that are just not going to be straight. They're not going to, they're not, they're going to do a lot of different things that are, you know, um, they're not truthful, that they're not, you know, they're gonna avoid responsibility, that type of stuff. And that's fine, but that's rare, right? Most of the time I'm dealing with people um, that want a resolution, uh, that, that, that want that. It's just a matter of being creative enough uh, and having a reputation of dealing with people where we're never ever gonna lie to you. We're never ever going to, and, and with the clients, you're right. I think it's not our job to tell them what they wanna hear. Um, it's for, uh, our job is to tell them the truth and that, you know, the, the scenarios you're talking about, because sometimes, I mean, litigation is inherently risky as, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, avoid litigation at all costs. Well, that's true for, you know, most of the time, but for some big cases, you know, that's the dispute resolution system and there's specific, you know, mediation, arbitration, all these different things that are kind of interwoven and all that. Um, one of the things that uh, I like to ask lawyers is, you know, at the end of their career, what, what kind of thing do you want to look back on and say, hey, listen, this is, I, I'm satisfied with how I was. What, what do you think about that? In my best cases, I hope not just to be that person's divorce attorney in the sense that I'm going to get them through this and then go on to the next case. 
the best case scenario would be to look for options to set that person up that they are in a position to start that new chapter of their life in and be whole, like I was saying before. So if that means referring them to a financial planner, um, setting, encouraging them maybe to seek some therapy, um, referring them to some good, you know, real realtors. So that way they could look for a new home and being that ear for them, if, if appropriate, you know, as far as what other options do they have for the future and talking through the realities of what their life's going to look like after and in the process, as opposed to just looking at the spreadsheet and getting it done. If the more of my cases that I can handle in that way, the better. And I think that would be considered, consider a successful practice for me. Um, my, my favorite cases are the ones where I feel that, that the client has taken some of my advice and it's improved their life. And whether that's a big case or a small case, like they're, I'm fortunate to have made those, had those kinds of professional relationships with clients where I feel like that I made a difference and I helped them through this process. And I, frankly, that would be considered success for me to, to look at my book of business retroactively, I'm sorry, retrospectively and say, you know, the majority of my cases were like that. And I had some tough ones, but that was the integrity that I held throughout my career. No, that's great. I, you know, um, one of the things that we really focus on in our culture here is with our clients is, you know, we don't look upon them as transactions. We look upon um, them as people that we, we tell them that, you know, they're going to be our clients for the rest of their lives, at least as far as we're concerned that they can come back to us, talk to us um, about other issues. You know, um, if they're unemployed, they lose their job or their kids, you know, whatever they, and they, we're going to help them. Uh, and, you know, we've got a big network of people that we deal with just like you do. And so, you know, I don't want to be, you know, one dimensional with people. And, you know, as we've learned from this podcast is uh, we're talking with a very uh, multi-dimensional person here um, who is, you know, sounds like pretty fun to be around. One thing I wanted to ask you before um, before uh, we, we wrap this up is I want to hear about the time that you spent in Peru. Oh, sure. <laughs> so I've actually... I've been there more than once. My stepmom um, is from Peru. So the second time that I was there is actually there for um, my, my dad and my stepmom's wedding. So they got married about 10 years ago. So I was an adult uh, and I was there for the wedding. So that was awesome. <laughs> they had it like on the beach and it was beautiful. Uh, the first time that I was there, I actually had gone they had just started dating and I knew that I had always wanted to go to South America. Um, so it just provided a convenient opportunity to have a place to stay, frankly. Um, so I didn't have to stay in a hostel. I stayed with um, my now stepmom's sister. Um, and then I volunteered while I was there at what essentially would be a foster home here. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a home where, um, we had to, we had to drive out of the main, I stayed in Lima, but Lima is a pretty, um, westernized city, uh, and it's, it's pretty developed. So I had to take a, 
a cab out every day um, to the foster home. It was Ciudad de los Niños, and it was a home for boys between the ages of, I think it was eight and 12 or something like that, where if their parents, it's, it wasn't that their parents had to have been deceased. It may have just been that in that underdeveloped section of the, of the population that they just really couldn't afford them uh, to raise them. And so these boys would go to school there. They would um, learn life skills, learn to cook. They would all have, you know, different chores in addition to learning. And they would all learn a trade as well. So that way, when they graduated um, from the program, you, some of the kids did stay longer or they went to the other um, part of the program where they were older and continued to learn their trade, but they would have those life skills to take care of themselves and support themselves financially. So that was really a great experience for me as well, because I got to uh, work with those kids directly. And one of the things that we didn't get into for lack of time is I've taken so many jobs growing up in, in working with kids directly, because I knew I always wanted to work with children and families. And I didn't know exactly what contacts I knew I wanted to be an attorney um, it all, all makes sense now, uh, but I have taken many different jobs, paid, unpaid, partially stipend, <laughs> just to work with kids and families directly. So that way, when I came to this point in my career where I'm more behind the desk and I don't always meet the person other than my direct client, I would have experience with those different uh there's different people and the different members of the family. And I, I just really like working with, with children. So that was one of the things that I did when I was there um, in Peru as well. I, I did it here as well. And I, um, in a home for um, at-risk youth in Champaign, when I was down in university of Illinois, uh, there was kids actually who had come in from a DCFS and those kids, their parents were um, either deceased or their rights were terminated in the juvenile court system. And so they had, they had come from a lot of interesting backgrounds and some pretty intense stuff. Uh, and so I was able to work with those kids, develop relationships with them, help them learn life skills um, here in the state. So I, I continue to seek those kinds of experiences that eventually were informative to me in my practice now in family law. Awesome. So um, as far as your, your, your law practice, are there any, um, I, I know there's, you know, almost all of these things that we work on are somewhat confidential and, and private, et cetera, but are there any things that, um, that, that uh, are cases that, you know, you could refer to that were very meaningful to you uh, in your young practice that, that you, you hope that will happen again? Sure. Um, I did. I'm currently, uh, or very recently, uh, was representing uh, a, a person. I was with a special needs child, and it's really difficult sometimes because I know that there are limited funds, and I'm just trying to stick with the case and be as efficient as possible um, in representing this person because I can see that this person is very, is really putting the child's needs first. And I, and I don't think it's always understood by the other side that um, the, the way that this person has rearranged their life um, 
to, to put their child's best interest first and that their goal is not litigation, it's just to get certain things met for the child. So um, that's an important one. Um, I have one of my case, another one of my cases that really stands out to me is uh, it was a Cook County case several years back where I represented um, an individual who, to tell the story, I'll just have to disclose this individual was I was representing the father and he had never put himself on the birth certificate. And we had to, uh, and several years went by, uh, he had tracked down um, the mother and was able to to get involved again in the child's life. So the, the other parent basically had cut him off. Um, and we, I had filed had to file an emergency intervention motion and he hadn't seen his child for about two and a half years. And I was in the courtroom when the, the judge ordered them to immediately go across the street um, and meet in a facilitative kind of counseling session just for the child's, you know, they, they hadn't seen this parent in a while. Um, and it was, it was a great system they have set up there in Cook County. Um, and I was in the uh, downtown all day and in the room when he came back and he had tears in his eyes because he hadn't seen his kid in two and a half years. And we had an order entered that day that you know, there was acknowledgement that he was the father. He just wasn't familiar on how to go about that process and, and unfortunately didn't put himself on the certificate at the, at the time years back. So, um, yeah, that was a really important one for me as well. That's great. Well, listen, I, um, I know that uh, you're a very busy uh, lawyer and I really appreciate you taking time to sit down with us and I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to talk again um, and you can tell us more about your shark trips and your big sur vacations and all these cool things that you do. Um, uh, so I save those stories up for us the next time. I, I'll tell you um, one thing that I do or have done is just gotten in the car and driven West. And um, I think you would like that too. Um, and then you could take some trips in Montana, South Dakota, all these different places. Cause our country is absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, um, and it's so nice that uh, you, you get an appreciation if you drive west all the way to the west coast, how big it is. It's absolutely huge, and most people don't even venture more than 10 miles away from their home, so I, I would recommend that they do that. It, it's, a, it's a fairly cheap way to do it, especially if you can figure out a way to use a tent like you do, right? <laughs> Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate your time. I, it was great talking to you. Um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Oh, absolutely. And we'll see you around the bend. Take care. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.